0: You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Well, how are we doing tonight, Overflow? I am standing here in a very empty worship center, minus a few people who are helping us record today. It is uh, about four o'clock on Thursday afternoon, two days uh, before I'm getting married. Now, if you're watching this, uh, that means that the unimaginable has happened, the very unlikely has happened, and that is that uh, I got married three days ago because by the time you watch this, hopefully my wedding has happened successfully, uh, meaning that she didn't run away and meaning that I somehow uh, convinced Leslie Hirsch to, uh, to commit the rest of her life uh, to being my wife until she's dead or I'm dead, whichever one of us goes first. Um, So that's pretty crazy, and uh, I can confidently say, and I know as I say this, uh, some of you in this room are going to uh, probably amen at this, which kind of makes me mad, but whatever. Uh, But I can confidently say that I have married way over my head. Uh, Go ahead, amen to that. Afua, probably in the front row, amen and really loud right now. Um, But yeah, so two days before the wedding right now as we're filming, but by the time you watch this, it's been three days past, and so obviously not there this week. Um enjoying the honeymoon, um, but uh, wanted to finish out this series at the end of this uh, semester. Love this series. Now, I do want to say this before we go anywhere else uh, tonight with our study. First of all, I want to say thank you so much to everybody in this room who, uh, who came to the wedding, to those who didn't come, whatever, but uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, but everybody in the room who did come to the wedding, we just want to thank you. Thank you. Leslie and I both want to say thank you so much for coming. Um, it, having you all at the wedding, I know, made that very special to us, and you need to know that this ministry is really special to me and to her, and just the impact it's had on our lives. Um, Hopefully, you know, we've had an impact on your life, but you all have had such a big impact on our lives, and so um, really big to have y'all a part of that. Um, Yeah, and I also want to say thanks for uh, bearing with me over the past few weeks as I've been juggling ministry and been juggling uh, getting ready for this wedding. I've, I've heard a rumor that there's kind of this thing going on at Overflow where people are tallying up how many times I talk about this wedding with Leslie, and so uh, I guess that's kind of an inside thing going on that I wasn't supposed to know about. I know about it now, so if you're doing that, then get your tally marks ready because there's going to be a lot of that tonight. Before we study Revelation and finish out the series, a uh, couple things I, I need to say just kind end of end-of-the-year stuff. First of all, um, tonight, if they haven't already, our interns are going to announce the fact that we're going to Collegiate Week. Uh, August 7th through the 12th, I believe, are the dates. Uh, so right before school starts back up in the fall, we, uh, every year we take a group to Santa Fe, Glorieta, New Mexico. It's right outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico, in the mountains for a week of basically uh, youth camp for college students. You have two worship sessions every day, incredible speakers, Uh, worship leaders all these breakout sessions during the day then there's these uh, intramurals and uh, stuff to do in the mountains and it's just beautiful out and there's like 2,000 college students there Uh, we are taking 18 students and tonight is the first night to sign up Uh, the total cost for that trip will be $380 that includes everything except for a couple meals going and coming so I hope you'll go. It's one of my favorite weeks of the year. And again, kind of like spring break, I enjoy getting to spend a whole week with 18 of you getting to know you. So uh, we'll have interns at the Overflow table in the back that you can ask more about that uh, from them. Also, with it being the end of the year, uh, it means that we usually transition some staff members uh, out and new staff members in. And uh, I I wanted to this last week at Overflow until we had to cancel it, unfortunately. I wanted to honor... Um, our two interns from this year, uh, Josh Gardner and uh, Anna Karen Renteria, AK-47, um, just for their incredible hard work uh, this year. They've been two awesome interns to work with, and so Josh, AK, uh, I just want to say I love you so much and so thankful for you and um, all your hard work. We're actually going to honor them a little bit more on Sunday, May 8th when uh, when I get back. But um, I also want to tell you that we have two new interns coming in for the fall, and that's going to be Zach Cunningham and Rachel Havlock, and really excited about them coming on board. And Devin will continue to be our administrative assistant. Um, so, talking about tonight in this series. Uh, I think this sermon is going to be one of the hardest for me to ever preach for a few reasons. First reason is, uh, like I've already said, I'm less than 48 hours away from getting married, which means I'm literally in this moment living out my last moments of singlehood. And so uh, this Saturday at 2 p.m., April 30th, right here in this room, we're going to be holding a memorial service for my singlehood. And so obviously uh, I'm mourning the loss of something that's been great in my life. Obviously I'm excited about getting married, but let's just be real. I am mourning the loss of my singlehood. Second reason this is going to be a hard sermon to preach is, Instead of preaching to a room full of college students and actual humans who I can look at and respond to and see your reactions, I'm preaching to an empty room. And so it's kind of awkward for me. I'm not sure how to do this staring at a camera, not really sure what to do with my hands here. So if they kind of do weird things, I'm sorry about that. And then the third reason I think this is going to be one of the hardest sermons I've ever preached is we have four chapters of Revelation left to cover, and I'm going to preach for about 20 minutes here. And so it's pretty much an impossible task uh, obviously, canceling overflow last week uh, didn't help with that. So, how are we going to cover four chapters of Revelation in one sermon? And here it is. I'm going to give you two words, and this is going to sum up four chapters. Ready? Jesus wins. Last four chapters of Revelation, I feel like can very easily be summarized in those two words: Jesus wins. I hate to spoil the ending for you, but that's what happens. And and here's the reality. The reality is, as I was as I was thinking about this, especially as we got further into the study. I started to realize we could do a whole, and we might do this at some point, we could do a whole, probably semester-long series on just these last four chapters of Revelation. There's so much there, so much jam-packed in there. So it's really not fair to sum all of it up in just two words, Jesus wins. But the other side of that is, uh, these two words perfectly, in so many ways, capture everything that you're going to read next in these last four chapters. Now, I want to remind you that the goal of our study in Revelation from the start has not been to figure out every. Uh, mysterious thing that takes place in this book, and try to decode it all. Instead, our goal has been to wrap our our, our hands around, wrap our minds around the core truths that are so obviously. Uh, presented in, in the text. And so tonight, as we really take a quick glance at, at the last four chapters, chapters 19, 20, 21, and 22, I think you're going to be left with a few questions still that you're, that you're going to be asking. And I just want to throw those out there here and just let you know from the start they're not going to be answered. But one of those questions that you're probably going to have is the question of, you know, what is this thousand year reign of Christ mentioned in chapter 20? What is that? Why is that there? What's the purpose of it? Is that where it falls chronologically? Like, well, like what is that all about? Um, You're probably still going to leave with that question. You're going to still leave with the question of what does this new heaven and this new earth look like? What is it about? I mean, um, and and we can speculate for a long time about those things and dig into some of the details there. But the core truth that we're going to focus on tonight and that we see in these final four chapters is ultimately Jesus wins. Now, that being said, here's what's so providentially cool about where we left off the last overflow and where we pick up this week in Revelation. And I say providentially cool because I promise you I didn't plan it this way. Um, This Revelation series was well in the process of being worked out and studied and planned for long before I, I even decided to ask Leslie to marry me. And long before Leslie and I decided to get married in like three months or a little less than three months. So here's what's so providentially cool. Revelation chapter 19, what we're studying tonight, begins with the big future wedding of Jesus and the church. And this is providentially cool and honestly, providentially convenient because as one day you'll find out, uh, when you get 48 hours away from getting married, there's really not a whole lot else that you can find yourself thinking about. And so God knew that I'd be preaching this to a camera, uh, two days before I get married, knowing that it's hard to think about anything else. Therefore, uh, I think he put it to where we'd be studying this and I'd be easy to talk about the future wedding because I'm, I'm about to get married myself. So if you've not seen this already, you need to hear this. You need to see this. My wedding with Leslie the tally marks I feel like are really uh, getting, getting marked up already. My wedding with Leslie in two days um, from the time of filming this or three days ago when you're watching this um, it is obviously going to be a big day for us. And your wedding, whenever that is, is obviously going to be a big day for you. But the truth is our weddings only are a foreshadowing of a much bigger day and a much bigger wedding to come. If you haven't seen this yet in scripture, this entire book ultimately is about the fact that God, he designed marriage. And marriage points to something much bigger. God designed marriage. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter two, verse 24, and listen to this. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. In, in the second chapter of the first book of this whole Bible, God mentions marriage and he, he lays out the plan for marriage. And ultimately, God gave us marriage to direct our attention To his son, Jesus Christ. If you were to flip to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, Paul, who wrote that book, he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32 says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage also, it's the most perfect picture of the gospel that God's given to us. Everything from the engagement to the engagement ring. Uh, Ephesians one thirteen to fourteen, we studied this. Actually, uh, I think week six of this series, Paul writes: In Him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. If you missed that week, essentially, in the moment that you put your faith in Christ, uh, that's the moment in which Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, slips a ring on your finger, saying, "Hey, I'm coming back to marry you." So get ready. Uh, So everything from the engagement and the engagement ring is is a picture of the gospel. Everything uh, to the ceremony. The the ceremony itself is even a picture of the gospel. We'll see this here in a second. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 through 9. Uh, It says this, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. It blatantly says it there. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the one whom the Lamb is marrying, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So marriage is the most perfect picture of the gospel that God's given us. uh, From the engagement and the engagement ring to the ceremony uh, to the marriage itself. Going back to Ephesians 5, look at verse 22. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Even the marriage, like what happens after the wedding, points to something so much bigger. It's all just a smaller picture of a much bigger reality. God wants a relationship with you. He wants a relationship with me. John chapter 17 verse 3. Jesus says this. He says and this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Jesus, he wants a relationship with us. He pursued us. John 3:16 says for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son <clears throat> that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 also shows us how Jesus pursued you. He pursued us. It says, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He pursued us by leaving his highest, transcendently. Uh, distant, that's not the right way to say that, but whatever, there's this transcendent between us and God, transcendent distance between us and God and, and Jesus. He left that high place at the right hand of God, came to the earth, lowered himself, humbled himself, pursuing us so that we could have a relationship with him. So he pursued us. He also proposed to us. Again, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, that that proposal moment, I'll read it again. Paul said, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's the moment that God slips the ring on our finger, who is, the whole, or who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So he pursued us, uh, he's proposed to us, and, and he's now planning a wedding for us. John 14, verse one, listen to what Jesus says. As the disciples, they were hearing that Jesus was going to be leaving them. Uh, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have... Or I would have told you that I, I sorry, I would, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. Eventually, John 14, 6, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him, Jesus. So he's planning a wedding for us. And, and here's the crazy thing. It's crazy when you think about all this because God, he is totally and completely out of our league. This future wedding is going to be a really unique wedding because in every way, we are an unworthy bride for the groom who is God. Romans 3.23 says, For the wages of sin... I'm sorry, that's Romans 6.23. Romans 3.23 says, For all, everybody in this room tonight, everybody on your campus, everybody on this planet, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are an unworthy bride of the groom who is God. But you read on in scripture and it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, that's Ephesians 2, 4, he made us worthy to be his bride through what Jesus did on the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul writes, for our sake he made him, God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We don't deserve him at all. But God shows his love for us. He demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans chapter five, verse eight. So ultimately what it comes down to for us is it's a matter of either receiving or rejecting this gift of salvation, this gift that God has offered to us. And so for those who have received God's gift of salvation through Jesus, for those of you who have received that gift, then all of our earthly weddings all of our earthly weddings should ultimately remind us and encourage us that, that our big wedding day, capital B, capital W, our big wedding day is coming soon. Romans 13, 11 says, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Re- Revelation 22, verse 12, which, you know, one of the last four books or one of the last four chapters of, of this book Revelation twenty two twelve says, behold, Jesus says, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. So for those of us who have received the gift of salvation, ultimately, any earthly wedding should just be a reminder to us, an encouragement to us of the future wedding that we have, that we're waiting on in Christ. But, but to those who have not yet received that gift of salvation, you need to know that the only way that you'll be able to participate in this much greater wedding between Jesus and the church is if you've been saved from your sins by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.8 and 9, Paul writes, "...for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast." Romans chapter 10, verse 9, we quote it in here all the time. It says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So ultimately, ultimately, all of this is is a picture of uh, this greater wedding that is revealed in Revelation chapter 19. So open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19 if you haven't already. And we're going to pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago in verse 6. And listen to what it says. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. So right there you see the announcement of the marriage of the Lamb. Um, right now my my refrigerator home is full of all these save the dates from students in our ministry and some students from my last ministry getting married. Uh, Brittany Maroon and Preston Hoffman getting married, I believe, May 20th. And then uh, June 24th-ish, somewhere in that range, is uh, is uh, Sam and Megan. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking right now that Josh and Rachel are getting married June maybe 18th, but I don't have a save-the-date. I don't know why that is. But anyways, maybe they don't want me to come to the wedding. Whatever. Uh, my own intern. Maybe I've just worked them too hard. But anyways, I've got all these save-the-dates on my on my refrigerator. And it's funny when you see all these save-the-dates because it uh, it, it feels like So one of the first things that that people do after they get engaged is they go take these engagement photos, which are honestly, I I feel like weird, one. And two, kind of humiliating to do. First of all, I don't understand the people that take the we're just dating photos. Like they have a professional photographer take them out into a field and they take photos together and they're not even like engaged or anything. That's another issue. But um, the engagement photos uh, are just kind of awkward to me. Um, I'll just say, so um, Phyllis Newman took... Me and Leslie's uh, engagement photos, she, she's an incredible photographer and was very gracious to do those for us. Uh, but it's just awkward, so awkward for me. I'm, I, 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 I had this, I was like, the one photo that I definitely will not take is that classic engagement photo where you have like the tree in between. The, the, the two and you know one's got his hands around the tree like this, like he's chasing the girl and the girl's like over here like, oh my gosh, he's going to get me on the other side of the tree. I said, I will not do that. So we did all these other engagement photos and it was just so awkward. Finally, we're sitting in this field and they're trying to tell me to do this stuff and Leslie's getting mad at me because I'm like, I feel weird and you start to do the weird smile because you kind of clam up in front of the camera and finally I was like, I just can't do this anymore. And so uh, I quit and that ended up in kind of a little bit of an argument. But engagement photos are weird and hard and uh, so... One of the first things you do after you get engaged, though, is you take these photos, and one of the reasons is because then you start sending out all these save-the-dates. And uh, it's funny to me because I feel like in these save-the-date photos, different couples, they try to, like, out-creative each other in these save-the-dates. So all these photos on my fridge, you know, one's creative, and then you look at the next one, and it's like they try to do something that's never been done before. Ultimately, you're just copying somebody else in some way or another. All of this, though, to announce your coming wedding. Here's why I share that. This right here, where they're announcing the marriage of the Lamb, it's not announcing it to say, hey, it's coming in the future. No, at this point in Revelation 19, when this happens, like this is announcing that the wedding is here right now. And so you read on, verse 7, it says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Like it's now, it's not coming, it has come. And it says, And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now focusing on that line there where it says, and his bride has made herself ready. Think about all the stuff that a bride does uh, to get ready for her wedding. Like I'm learning all this now as we're two days out and I know what Leslie's schedule looks like on Saturday morning before the wedding. And even like now there's things that she's doing to get ready for the wedding. You know, they got their hair and makeup, scheduled and everything for that morning. And that's a big festivity where all the bridesmaids and stuff go get their hair did and stuff. I I don't know if you noticed, I got a haircut today getting ready for the wedding, even though I'm not the bride. Uh, They go get a manicure and pedicure, you know, get the nails done and their feet done or whatever whatever that is. Uh, And then uh, they go tan and, you know, fake bake, whatever, get the spray tan. I don't know what they do, but uh, obviously I didn't hop on that train because I'm pretty white. Um, they get their eyebrows done. They get all the stuff done. Then they, you know, of course, leading up to the wedding, you got the LGN diet and the LGN workout, which I realized a few weeks ago, I mentioned the LGN. I mentioned LGN and everybody looked at me like I was dumb. And it was really funny because some people in the room know what LGN is. Some of y'all still don't know what it is, but it was funny to watch because I said LGN diet and everybody kind of looks at me like, what, what is, what is that? But a few people knew what it was, and so I was watching them, and they kind of nudged the person next to them and whispered in the ear what the LGN diet was, and then that person laughed and passed it down the row, and everybody, all of a sudden, as they get it, like, oh, you know, light bulb goes off. Some of y'all still don't know what it is, and you're passing it down the rows right now, um, figuring it out. But anyways, you do the LGN diet, the LGN workout to get ready for the wedding. I'm probably leaving out something, but then, in preparation for the wedding, probably the most important thing the bride does to get ready is she picks out her dress, and uh, this is a huge deal. What the bride wears on the wedding day is is a really big deal, and that's one of the first things that a girl does after she gets engaged. She gets get gats. She gets her bridesmaids together, her friends together, her, her mom together, her grandmother together, and they go out on this like festive shopping thing where they go and look at all these different uh, dresses and try them on and and uh, all that stuff. And then once they find the dress, say yes to the dress, uh, they send it off to get. You know, made, fit, tailor, I don't know, whatever. Sometimes I've heard sometimes it takes like six months to get this stinking dress made. And uh, it's been so frustrating the past few weeks because Leslie, her maid of honor, actually made her dress, which is, that's kind of cool. Um, but she's been, she's got all these pictures of it. She just took her bridal portraits uh, a couple of weeks ago, and she's got them on her phone. And everywhere we go, uh, she's walking around showing everybody, you know, oh, you want to see my dress? You want to see my dress? And, of course, I can't see the dress. So, uh, obviously, by this time you're watching this, I've seen the dress. But right now, I'm like, what the heck? I want to see the dress. Anyways, dresses uh, are a big deal. And, uh, and they're expensive, too. I, I was looking up online. Like the most, or the, the average dress these days in America costs like $1,300. The average wedding dress costs $1,300. I also saw the average wedding right now costs like $26,000, something like that, which is insane because that's not anywhere in the ballpark of what Leslie and I spent on our wedding. I can't imagine spending that much. But anyways, beside the point, here, here's the point of all this. The point is... You would never show up to your wedding uh, without having showered for a week and wearing just any clothes from your closet. You wouldn't show up to your wedding uh, without having showered for a week and wearing these nasty, fallen apart rags of clothes. Now, that being said, think about the preparation that the bride must go through in order to be ready to marry the most holy, perfect, righteous Son of God, Jesus Christ. I mean, the Bible says very clearly that if we have sin in our lives, we will not be ready for the wedding. We cannot marry him until we're ready. And here, in verse 8, it says that the bride had made herself ready. Or the, bride, at the end of verse 7, it says the bride has made herself ready. The bride was ready. So we got to ask the question, how in the world is the bride supposed to make herself ready to marry the most holy son of God, Jesus Christ? And knowing that the church is the bride, essentially if we claim Christ, that means we are the bride, how are we to make ourselves ready for this future wedding? And you read on, verse 8, it says, It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Now, focus in on that phrase, it was granted to her to clothe herself. Some of the other translations, the New Living Translation says, She's been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. The NIV says, Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Uh, Another translation says, She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. So, so notice this, whereas Leslie went out and bought her wedding dress, and whereas many of you girls are going to one day go out and buy your wedding dress, here, this bride didn't go out and buy her dress. This bride didn't go out and shop for it. Instead, it was granted to her. It was given to her. In other words, the most beautiful and worthy wedding gown was given <clears throat> to the bride to wear for this special occasion. In other words, there's no... Gown worthy for this occasion that the bride could afford to purchase herself. This is one of the reasons that marriage is the most perfect picture of the gospel that God's given to us. He has given us the earthly wedding ceremony as a picture so that you and I may know that we have the opportunity to one day stand at an altar to be united eternally with Christ, all because He has lovingly and sacrificially paid the price for us to be there. Through his death on the cross. Short way to say it, Jesus has bought our wedding dress. And so the question is, have you put it on? Jesus has bought our wedding dress. The question is, have you put it on? And I want to look at a couple more things really quick in chapter 19. So skip ahead to verse 11 and it says, so again, it's describing the marriage of the Lamb, that ceremony. It says, verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and behold, I'll stop there for a second. So I just imagine this is the wedding ceremony. You think about a wedding ceremony today. Uh, Saturday, those doors right there swung open. And this is weird speaking in the future tense, but I know this is what's going to happen Saturday. Those doors right there swung open. And my bride, Leslie, beautifully comes busting in, stealing the show, and walks down this aisle. And I imagine that's kind of what happens here. Verse 11, it says, "Uh, then I saw heaven opened. In other words, it's like those doors bust open. I was at a wedding one time and uh the bride the you know they shut the doors after all the bridesmaids come in and then uh they open the doors for the bride to come out and as soon as they open the doors like we're all turned facing the doors and from the stage i don't know where these trumpet players came from but they appeared out of nowhere and all of a sudden they just start blasting these trumpets scared the junk out of everybody in the room but i kind of picture that's what this is going to be like all of a sudden the doors of heaven heaven swing open and look what happens it says then i saw heaven open and behold not a bride it says a white horse didn't see that one coming Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. Now, Leslie and I, we really, we really wanted our wedding uh, in every way to be symbolic of this future wedding. Um, you know what, what? we are hoping for again now, talking about two days from now, is for our wedding to uh, to to be something that doesn't really point the attention to us, but points the attention to Christ, and so. Knowing that's kind of our, our goal um, and seeing this picture here as I was studying for Revelation, I noticed, okay, so here the doors of heaven bust open. It's not the bride who comes down the aisle. It's the groom riding a white horse. So I tried to convince Leslie to let me kind of ride in on a white horse, but she didn't go for that. Um, but anyway, so the groom comes in on the white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And just a few descriptions here of Christ. You see a description of Christ here, and, and he says it says he's faithful and true, which I think is such an incredible picture of who Jesus is, especially... Knowing that many in this room, you've been in relationships where the person across from you has not been faithful, has not been true. Many of you, you've witnessed relationships in your own families where your father or your mother hasn't been faithful and true. And and maybe two of the biggest qualities that we get in Jesus Christ is that he is faithful and true. An incredible description of him. So it says, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. In other words, he is extremely powerful. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and that's obvious where that comes from. Uh, The only thing that makes him worthy as uh, our um, groom, or the thing that makes him worthy as our groom, going back to one of the early weeks of this, the thing that made him worthy to open up the seals was the fact that he had sacrificed himself. His robe was dipped in blood, showing that he had shed his blood for us on the cross. So verse 13, he's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Think back to John chapter 1, where John says, uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Um, talking about Jesus. Verse 14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. I imagine that's kind of like his groomsmen coming in behind him. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Just with his words, he will win these battles. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then you read on into Revelation 20. And In Revelation 20, that's where you see... Um, the 1,000 years, the 1,000-year reign of Christ, which, which, like I said, leaving tonight, I'm sure you're still going to have questions about that. What, what is that? Why is that there? Um, is this where it falls chronologically and everything else, or is this kind of a sidestep from what we're hearing and seeing? What's the purpose of it? Um, and I'll be honest with you, I've, I've got a lot of questions about the 1,000-year reign of Christ. Um, and, 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 you know, is it literal? What is the purpose of it? Chronologically, when will it happen? But I think the best way that at least I can understand... What this is, it almost seems like it's a honeymoon. You know, it comes right after uh, the wedding of the lamb and the bride. And then you have this thousand-year period that's kind of unique and set apart from everything else. And it almost appears like this is, like this is the honeymoon. And then you get to verse or chapter 21 and 22. And what you see in chapter 21 and 22, ultimately where it falls is you've got, the, you've got the wedding, then you've got the honeymoon, and then you've got a description of what being married to Christ is going to look like. So you've got a picture of not just the wedding, but the marriage. Um, so, all that being said, as we wrap up this semester and wrap up what has hopefully been a, a, a good, challenging, encouraging, and insightful study in the book of Revelation, what, what is the point of all of this? And, and I don't know if you remember going back to the very first week of this series, what, you know, what, what we started with. We, we started with Revelation 22, and we saw that three times in the very last chapter of this book, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Three times he says, I'm coming soon. One time he says, the time is near. And then another time in Revelation 22, Jesus refers to everything in this book of Revelation as what must soon take place. And so the question that night was, was the same as the question as we close this series tonight. Do you believe those words, that the time uh, is coming soon, that the time is near? Do you believe those words? And are you living like you know that the time is near? Are you running because you've got the finish line in your sights? I don't know if you remember the story from the very first week of me running and dry heaving, but continue, continuing to run even though I was feeling sick because I could see the finish line. Are you running because you have the finish line in your sights? Or are you walking or even worse, just standing still because you are distracted by all these other things around you? And like I said the very first week in January of this series, I don't think it takes a rocket scientist or a seminary-trained theologian to see how much the church in our context is really struggling to finish this race well. It's sad to see. It's sad to see so many churches full of people whose lives are consumed with the pursuit of things that will not last. Even, Even churches and college ministries full of people whose lives are consumed with things that won't last, things, that, things like their wedding day or <clears throat> things like they don't have a wedding day scheduled, so they're consumed with their singleness. They're consumed with the idea that they're not in a relationship. There's all these things that are not going to last forever that we're consumed with that are taking us off of our mark on the finish line. And you have to understand that's what non-believers do. That's what lost people do. We're doing the the same thing that people who don't have the hope of Christ do. We're living like we've never heard of heaven. We're living like, in so many ways, like we've never heard of life after death. We're living like there is no eternity. It's almost like, and I said this the first week, it's almost like we've adopted a heavenless or revelationless version of Christianity. But go to chapter 22, verse 7, and listen to this, this promise that Jesus gives. Revelation 22, verse 7, Jesus says, And behold, he says, Behold, I'm coming soon. Again, saying, I'm coming soon. But then listen to this. He says, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I want you to hear that again. You might underline keeps, keeps the words. just that word, keeps. He says, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. First of all, you have to understand, you cannot keep these words if you don't have them in the first place. So blessed is the one who keeps these words of the prophecy uh, of this book. You cannot keep these words if you don't have them in the first place. You can't uh, keep these words if, if you don't know them. And so in closing tonight, my first challenge to you is this. Read this book. Read Revelation. If you've not been reading through it with us, In this series, this semester, go back and read it. And then after you read it, read it again. And after you read it again, read it again. And don't stop doing that. Continue to read this book. But secondly, what does it even mean to keep? In this context, to keep these words, what does it mean to keep these words? And here's the picture. Keep them always in front of your heart and in front of your mind and in front of your eyes. In other words, set your heart on these things So that you're pursuing the things that will last. This is what's gonna last right here. Set your heart on this. Set your mind on this. Set your eyes on this. Set your heart on this. Set your mind on this so that when you're going through a trial, a a difficult time, you don't lose your hope. Set your heart and your mind on this so that instead of, you know, if you set your heart and your mind on a relationship over here, or you set your heart and your mind on this thing that you have right here, or this upcoming event that you have that you're super excited about, but then something happens, like this relationship goes away. Maybe he or she breaks up with you, or they, something terrible happens to them, and they die. Like, What if that goes away? If, you're, if your heart is set on that, what happens when that goes away? Or if your heart is set on this event over here, and you get sick, or you just can't go, or, or it gets rained out, Like, what, what is going to happen when that event goes away? Your hope is going to be lost. But if we set our heart, or even think about this, set your heart on this event, eventually that event is going to come and go. So you get to go to the event, you get to experience whatever that thing is you're looking forward to, you've set your mind on, but eventually it's, it's going to be over. So what happens when it's over? You, you go into this despair, this depression, or you start looking for the next thing to set your heart and your mind on. But if we would simply set our heart and our mind on this thing, which will last, our, our hope will stand firm always. So I I hope this study is helpful to you. Um, All that being said, I want to go back to this. And this is how I want to kind of close the night, the the semester this study. I want to go back to the fact that I'm standing here in this uh, empty worship center. And um, I'll tell you, it is quite different preaching to a room full of nobody um, than it is preaching to a room full of a lot of people. But as I was thinking about this moment in preparing my mind just mentally to preach to a camera, which is not an easy thing to do, as I was preparing my mind for being in this empty room, I think the Lord revealed to my heart it's it's such a powerful illustration right now. If nothing else, it's, it's edifying to my heart. When this room is empty, it's so much easier for me to focus on the real reason that I preach every Tuesday night at Overflow. When this room is empty, I'm I'm not consumed with or struggling with being consumed with wanting to entertain or um or do a good job of preaching for for you. Like I, I'm not I'm not as consumed with wanting y'all to like me as a speaker. Like I'm not I'm not as consumed with or struggling with being consumed with performing for the people in this room. Instead, this room is empty and it is just me and an audience ultimately of one and that is what our life ultimately is we we are we're not to perform for anybody and ultimately we're not even to perform for the Lord we're ultimately not to serve anybody but the Lord we have an audience of one that we are living our life out in front of and right now preaching in this empty room is such a perfect reminder for me that I am preaching every Tuesday night for an audience of one not audience of however many are here but an audience of one and that is God that is Jesus Christ that is the Holy Spirit and so when this room is empty, it's, it's, it's easier to remember that. And it's easier to keep my heart, my mind, and my eyes focused on that. And here's why I share that. I share that because ultimately this study is all about us being reminded of that one thing we're to keep our eyes focused on. The one whom we are to focus on. And that is Christ. And so my challenge to you is, as we end this semester and as we go into the summer is, is, is to fix your eyes on Christ, ultimately, just on Christ, ultimately, but, but even just revelation, thinking about this future hope we have. Fix your eyes on that future hope because that is the only way that you and I are going to be able to run hard this race to the finish of following Jesus. It's easy to run when things are going easy and going good, but it's hard to run when things are getting difficult and you're running uphill. The reality is most of life is running uphill. Um, And the only way that we will not quit running is if our eyes are fixed on this finish line. And so I challenge you to do that. Um, Let me pray for us. Lord, as we close out the night and as we close out this series and as we close out this semester, we just want to come before you and Thank you for giving us this solid, firm hope to set our minds and our hearts and our eyes on and to direct our lives toward. Lord, with as fleeting as everything is around us, I thank you for giving us something that is never going to change, and that is who you are, and what you're preparing for us right now in heaven. And Lord, coming into this series, I just, I cannot help but wonder and ask how much differently our ministry, how much differently our church, how much differently just the culture of Christianity in our area would look if we were people who had fully set our hearts and our minds and our eyes on this future hope, not the temporary things that we have. I think we would look a lot different. I think we would live a lot different. I think we would think and talk and act so much different. And so, Lord, my prayer is that through this series, in my life and in these students' lives, that even if it's just a little bit more, that that this has shifted our focus to where it belongs, which is on you and on this future hope. And so, Lord, as we go into the summer, I pray for these students. I pray that... um, I pray that this summer would be a significant summer for all of us, growing in you, following you. And I want to pray specifically just one more time for the seniors in the room. I want to pray that you would just encourage them and give them courage as they step into this new season of life, as they have probably some very significant decisions ahead of them. Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage to, to follow you, trusting you, even when the way that you lead them seems crazy or illogical or is completely contrary to what the worldly wisdom around them is telling them to do. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have in your son, Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.